Genesis chapter 25 and verse 1. Let's, let's pray again. Holy Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us tonight as we pray every week, every time we open the Word. Be our teacher. And Spirit block anything, any words that might come out of me that are not directly in line with your Word. And Lord, let us see your Word clearly, understand it, write it on our hearts and minds as I prayed before. And draw us closer together and to you tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. Talked about her on Sunday. She bore to him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, and Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, and Ephor, and Hanach, and Abida, and Eldeah. All these were the sons of Keturah. <laughs> now, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, hang on real quickly before we go on to that next verse. I'm going to save these first four verses for the end. So we'll come back and look at them. But for now, just understand that after 20 years of singleness, Sarah died and, and Abraham for 20 years was alone. And when you've lived with someone as long as Abraham had lived with Sarah, wow, it's a long time to be alone. But now he has a new wife and Keturah, whose name means fragrance, must have added some sweetness to the last days of his life. I want to talk to you just for a few minutes here in these parting verses as we see Abraham die. We spent a lot of time with Abraham. I was almost sad this week thinking, we're done. We're moving on. You know, but it's okay. God's still with us. He's going to take us on. But in this, I want you to see how Abraham dies. And I think there's a principle we can draw from this, and that's how to die happy. Here it is, verse 5. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Number one. Abraham dies broke. There's a book out recently called Die Broke. The whole idea is get rid of everything you have, spend it all, give it away, give it to your children. Well, I've been talking to my parents about this for years. They don't buy it. It's a little you know, unfortunate. Abraham dies broke. He deeds everything over to Isaac. In this story, remember that Isaac is still a type of Jesus. And Abraham is a picture of God the Father. And here again we see that Isaac has all things that once belonged to his father. The father gives all things to the son. And in the same way Jesus prayed, John 17 verse 10, in his high priestly prayer, he said, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us how? In his son. Everything we just talked about. His son is the word. And God has chosen in these last days to speak to us through Jesus. Not to speak to us in many portions in many different ways. The word is, is complete until Jesus comes, folks. And he's spoken to us in his son, Hebrews 1-2, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 tells us, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The Father gives the Son everything. 
And here we see Abraham deeding everything to Isaac. And it's important to understand this. As we look at this picture, not only is Abraham now freeing himself as he's dying, before he dies. He gives it all to his son. He dies broke. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't need to have anything. He's going to a good place. He's going to a better place. And so he gives it all to Isaac. It's important to understand this because ultimately, finally, in the consummation of all things, we need to know that everything rests at Jesus' feet. Everything belongs to him. Everything that we have or think that's important, everything that truly is important, it will rest at the feet of Jesus. Now the question often asked by us as we follow Jesus as Christians is how do I know if my life is pleasing to God? How can I really be sure that the things I'm doing, the way I'm living, pleases Him? And the answer is very simple. Live in the direction of Jesus. Live to give all things to Him. He has it all anyway. He's the heir of everything. Give it all to Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will. The mystery of His will. What's God's will? I just wish I knew what God's will was. Here it is. The mystery of His will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. That's the mystery of his will. To sum up everything in Christ. To bring everything to Christ. For Christ to be literally the heir, the owner of all things. Whatever I'm doing that is not centered in, focused on, directed toward Christ... Anything that I'm doing that is not in that direction will lead me to meaninglessness and hopelessness. What do you mean? I mean that I will not only lack meaning today in my life, a sense of purpose for now, but I will also be hopeless for my future if I'm heading in directions that aren't pointed at Christ. And that's the problem in the world today. That's why people are lacking, why people are not satisfied, why we can never get enough. Because we're chasing after things that are, that are like a big sieve. You know, you pour the sand in and it just comes right out the other side. And we, we buy things and we do things and we seek after things. And it all just goes right through the sieve. But everything we do as to Jesus, everything we do for the purpose of Jesus, those things last. Those things are valuable. Those things we will start to sense, wow, some value. Some meaning in what we're doing, but greater than the meaning we have in this life is the hope we gain in the life to come. John, in talking about Jesus' return and keeping our eyes fixed on that return and looking forward to that day, says everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. My life becomes cleaner and more pure the more I gaze in the direction of Jesus and the more I long for his return. These things are so important. Folks, Jesus is Lord of both the meaning for the day and the hope for tomorrow. Colossians 3.17 tells us, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him, through Him, to God the Father. So Abraham dies broke, gives everything to Isaac, and it's a great way to die, to die happy. Number two, Abraham, Abraham dies a father of one. He dies a father of one. In other words, he dismisses the rest of his family. Look at that, verse 6. It tells us that he gave gifts to some of his concubines. Abraham had concubines? Yeah, he did. Sorry. A little disappointing. <laughs> Abraham gave gifts to them while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac. By, by the way, just an understanding on some of the, the people of the Bible that do things that now we would say, well, God doesn't allow that, concubines. 
more than one wife. Well, what's going on there? Understand that man was a child and God throughout history has been training man in the direction of righteousness, helping him to understand. There are things, folks, that you know that Abraham did not know. Do you realize that you're capable of having a faith greater than Abraham's? Why? Because you've got an entire word that he did not have. And you have the Holy Spirit, that's right, that he did not have. And that's why, you know, we keep coming back. Word, spirit, word, spirit, sword, spirit. The two S's of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. The sword and the spirit. Man, that's something that... Yeah, we can have a deeper, greater faith than Abraham. Yes, he had concubines. At this point, we don't even know, you know. God did intention one man for one woman. But man is on that path of learning, of developing, of growing in righteousness. Well, Abraham dies a father of one. He dismisses the family. Why does he do this? Why does Abraham send the family away? All of these other sons, these six lads he has with Keturah, Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. I just wanted to say them really fast. Sends them all away. Why? Because there's only one heir. Because Isaac is the only true heir of the father. One son, one heir, one only begotten of the father. Folks, there's coming a day when every knee will bow before the one heir who is Jesus. And this is partially why it took some time at the beginning tonight to once again reinforce this idea of seriously taking the word of God, of delving into scripture, of knowing what he wants us to know. There are those who see the direction of the church as needing to become more universal, needing to become a little less you know, exclusive and more inclusive. Joining hands with all beliefs among those searching for the truth. The problem is, if you read the Koran, what you will discover is Muhammad never called on the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Koran was written as a rewrite. Muhammad came along 600 years after Jesus, thousands of years after the Old Testament was put together. And he says, oh, it was corrupted. So we're going to rewrite it now and show you the, the true words of God. Because the old word got corrupted. That's Muhammad's take on it. Buddha never held up God. The Son of God is Savior. Confucius never mentioned following the Lord. These guys who we said before, John 10, verse 8, All who came before me, Jesus said, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. That's it. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. Why did Abraham send the sons away? Because Isaac was the only heir. And because Isaac was so important. And I believe because Abraham didn't want the influence of the rest of the family on Isaac. Isaac had a job to do. God had called him to something. Abraham understood that. Jude verse 17. Let me just read this to you. Talking about the last days, the end times. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers. Following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Abraham dismisses the family. Why? Because he's cleaning house for the sake of his only begotten son, Isaac. 
His only begotten Son. His one and only Son. Wait a minute. It says here that he has six sons. And before that he had Ishmael. So there's seven other boys other than Isaac. Folks, all of the other boys are sons of the flesh. Isaac is the only son of the Spirit. Do you understand what I mean by that? Sons of the flesh were sons who were born of fleshly means. The son of the Spirit, Isaac, was born of a spiritual means. That is, God had to heal, restore a womb, Sarah's, to make her capable of giving birth to a son. The Bible tells us that that son, Isaac, is a picture of spiritual things, whereas Ishmael, as we saw before, is a picture of fleshly things. So also with these other sons, dramatically, as you will see in a few minutes here. Gang, there's only one, and a day is coming when all others will be put away from rule, authority, and deception. And only one will rule in this world. Zechariah 14, verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. Now let me tell you something, a, a quick hint. We're going to talk in a few minutes about this period of time called the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. Why do I believe that's going to happen? Because the Bible says it will? And because Zechariah 14 verse 9 tells us the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And it hasn't happened yet. Check history. Check me on it. Has there ever been a time in history where God was king over all the earth? Oh, in a spiritual sense, sure. Created everything. But I'm talking about ruling and reigning directly out of Jerusalem as Zechariah says he will. It hasn't happened. Well, let me get ahead, ahead of myself here. Don't be trapped by the lie of universality. It implies that as long as you're seeking after the truth and have a hunger for the truth, you're in. And again, that kind of teaching is not only dangerous, it's damning. And so Abraham sends his sons away. He clears out the family. Isaac is the only one. He's the heir. He's the one who receives all things just as Jesus will. Verse 7. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Now, it's important in the Hebrew, the way this is written, it's not all the years. It's literally, these are all the days of all the years. That's very interesting. So later on, when other people die, there's mention that these are the years of the life of Isaac, or these are the years of the life of Jacob. But here, these are all the days of all the years. So the third thing to jot down on how to die happy... Abraham dies on his last day. Brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> he dies on his last day. On a particular day, because that's the way he lived his life. One day at a time. One day to the next. What does that mean? Folks, that's how you live life. Now going back to what I said, every decision I make today will affect me in the future. Remember that little rabbit trail we went on a few minutes ago okay come back to that now nobody magically arrives at that place we want to be we live one day at a time and every day's decisions grow us either in the direction of the Lord or away from him every day tomorrow may be the last day of life that you have how will that day be lived today could be it it could be in 20 years if it is 20 years each day that you live of the next 20 years will build you into the person that you're going to be 20 years from now. Not some magic leap into the future. It is a day-by-day day process. You know, there's no, there's no shortcut. I used to think there was. I used to believe there was. I shared this before. I, I got a master's degree. 
And when I went to get that master's degree, as, as a young, just out of college guy, I thought, oh, this is cool. When I get this degree, man, I'm going to walk out the door, have the diploma, and along with that, I'm going to have respect. And you know what God did? Well, first of all, He put me in youth ministry, which immediately takes all respect away. But secondly, He put me in youth ministry at a church where the last pastor they had had the same master's degree I had, and they fired him. So nobody had any respect for this particular master's degree that I was holding. My first job out of grad school and my diploma wasn't worth squat to the people I was working for. So you don't leap ahead. I had to develop respect day by day, day in and day out, working, walking, living in the Lord. That's how it happens. Not some amazing leap. And that's how Abraham lived. All the days of all the years of his life. James puts it this way. James 4.13 Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city. We'll spend a year there and we'll engage in business and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James says you're just hot air. <laughs> you're gas. You're here and you're gone. Some days stink. Other days, a little bit better. But that's it. Day by day living. And Abraham was a man who died on his last day. He lived every day before the Lord. Number four, I love this. Verse 8 tells us, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied, literally fat. <laughs> they add the words with life. Those words are not there. It's just he died in a ripe old age, an old man and fat. Now, not physically speaking here, but satisfied, fulfilled. His life was good. And when Abraham laid down to die in his tent that day, he laid down in complete contentment. What a way to go. What an awesome way to die. And he was gathered to his people. Number four, Abraham dies gathered to his people. You want to die happy? You die gathered to your people. Who are Abraham's people? Now think about this for a moment. Remember, he used to live, born and raised, for 50 years in Ur of the Chaldees. But he leaves his people and he goes to another place, Haran, and then on to the Promised Land. And the whole time he lives in the Promised Land, he's a sojourner, as he buys the cave in Machpelah to bury Sarah, and where he will eventually be buried here in just a moment, as we read forward, he tells the people there, I'm a foreigner among you, I don't have anything here. They're not his people. People in Ur of the Chaldees are not his people. Who are Abraham's people? He died and was gathered to his people. This is a great truth. This is wonderful. Abraham was gathered to his people. Who's that? All those who went before him in faith. Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Sarah. These were Abraham's people. People who followed God. People who spent the days of their lives following after, chasing after God. And I want to ask you, who are your people? I'm a Scottish American, personally. Those are my people. That's my heritage. I love that my heritage goes so much further back than that. There's not a culture in the world today that is my heritage. My heritage is a heritage of faith that goes back. Abraham is my people. 
Now, if you want to die and go to a place where everybody knows your name, it's not going to happen in a bar. And you know what's really funny about that show, Cheers, and all the years it ran, everybody just loved Cheers. Oh, the place where everyone knows your name. And Norm would walk in and they all go, Norm! And everybody knew his name. Have you ever... I don't want to get any of you in trouble here or make you, you know, kind of hold your sins out here or anything like that, but have you ever been to a bar where that's the case? You walk into a bar and people go, Hey, Rick, how's it going? Belly up, buddy. Hey, bye, Rick. Everybody just knows your name. People don't go to bars so that everybody can know their name. They go to bars so that they don't know anybody. Which is why the bar is dark. The smoke's everywhere. And, you know, the drinks come out and soon soon you don't know where your name is. Much less anybody else's name. A place where everybody knows your name? Come on. Who are your people? Who are you going to be gathered to? We all have friendships and circles of friends and, and people that are important to us. Are they your people? And are your people people of faith? Who are going to build you up and bear you up and when you die will they be the people saying I can't wait to see you again there are other people who are your people people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Daniel and Isaiah or how about Mary or Peter or John or Barnabas are these your people I like to think so Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 tells us, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the the race that is set before us. I love this passage. We have this great cloud of witnesses. And the Bible tells us that when we are raptured, when the church is called home, we go to meet Jesus where? In the clouds. And it may be cumulus and it may be nimbus, but it's very possible it may be spiritualist. It may be the people of God, that great cloud of witnesses. When we go up to meet Jesus, there stands Abraham and Isaac. And they're applauding. They're going, yeah, way to go. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, that's what they're doing right now. Right now, as we live in this world, on this earth, we are surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses. And they're cheering us on, folks. And those are my people. And when Abraham is gathered to his people, I know exactly who was waiting for him. Enoch, who walked with God one day and was no more. God just took him home. Meeting Abraham. Hey, Abraham! Right, you're here. Man, you look happy. That's right, because he died happy. Folks, I'm telling you all this to tell you life is short. We've got to recall that. Remember it. Don't get caught up in the things of this world. The building permits of this world. (laughs) The timber harvests of our lives. Oh, this stuff is so ridiculous and it's so petty and it's so childish. And and the way that I'm not going absolutely berserk right now is because God has me looking at Abraham's life every day. Thank you, Lord. Life is short. If we, like Abraham, can live learning to give it all to the Son living for the only begotten Son, living each day to the Son and focused with my people on the Son, that's not only how to die happy, it's how to live to eternity. And I believe that that's what we see here at the end of Abraham's life. Now, something interesting happens in verse 9. Let's read this together. Verses 9 and 10 tells us, Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre. 
The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Very quickly, I want to tell you about this. Ishmael, Isaac, are together again for the first time. At least from what we see in Scripture. Remember, Abraham had to drive Ishmael out because there was contention, there was strife, there was jealousy. And it was a bad scene. But now, something bizarre happens. And it's the fifth thing, if you're writing these things about how Abraham dies happy, the final one is Abraham dies in the company of reconciliation. Because it's Abraham's funeral that brings Isaac and Ishmael, the two half-brothers, back together in the same place. Now, I think there's a picture here that's interesting. That when people die, when funerals happen, it's interesting how estranged family members, at least for the day, can share grief together. And even in some cases can find reconciliation. Why is that? There's a principle here. And the principle is very simply that for reconciliation to happen in any relationships, there must be death. There has to be death. You do not have reconciliation without death. Somebody has to die. Colossians 1 verse 19 tells us it was the Father's good pleasure to, for all the fullness of Him to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through what? The blood of His cross. Reconciliation with the Father would not even be existent if not for the death of the Son. For reconciliation to happen on the broader spiritual plane between us and the Lord, there had to be a death. But the same thing is true in our lives. Flip real quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 18. Holy Spirit tells us now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, listen to this, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ministers of reconciliation. That's the job of the believer. To live a life that reconciles people to the Father vertically and reconciles people to each other horizontally. And it's not an easy thing to do in this world, is it? So how do you do it? How do you pursue reconciliation? There has to be death. The only way to truly reconcile a relationship is when we learn, sometimes painfully, how to die to ourselves. If I'm willing to die to myself, to put aside my pride, to put aside my ambitions, my aspirations, to take my own personal sense of me and crucify it, that's how reconciliation happens. Now, I want to tell you something doesn't always work. What do you mean? It didn't work always for Jesus. Huh? Jesus died to reconcile all things, all people to himself. 
But there's a key ingredient. Those who he died for have to accept it. They gotta choose it. On a practical level, you may die to yourself, you may humble yourself, you may come to somebody and say, Look, I love you. I want our relationship to be restored. But they have to accept it. They need to choose it too. So if you attempt to be a minister of reconciliation as we've been called to be, and people stop short of accepting that, understand. Understand that that's their call. But that doesn't relieve us from the responsibility of dying to self. For reconciliation to happen, there must be a death. And in Abraham's death, we see an interesting picture here. A possible reconciliation of Isaac and Ishmael. Well, verse 11. We really got to hurry. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. I remind you, this is the well where Hagar, interestingly, was. And it's the well that was named the well of the living one who sees me. Well, now Isaac, Abraham's true heir, is living over here at this well. Verse 12, reading on. Verse 12 tells us, these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. Holy Spirit wants us to make it clear where Ishmael came from. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, and Abdeel, and Midsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, and Hadad, and Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Why is this in here? Genesis 17, verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you, and I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Why is this little section of scripture in here with Ishmael? Two reasons. One, we're saying goodbye to Ishmael. This is the last you're ever going to hear of him in Scripture. Aside from the allusion to him being of the flesh in the, in the New Testament. This is the end of Ishmael's story. Why? It's no longer important because the covenant is with Isaac. However, it's in here to show us something, to remind us of something, and that is that God is faithful to his word. I will make Ishmael 12 sons. He will be 12 princes. I hear you, Abraham. I'll take care of him. And so we read all of these silly names that are hard to read. The 12 princes, according to their tribes, exactly as God said. He is faithful. Verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. Not the days of the years, just the years. 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. A different people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes toward Assyria, he settled in defiance. In defiance of all his relatives. Abraham died happy. Ishmael died defiant. Which is exactly what God said would happen. He will be a wild donkey of a man. He will be defiant. He will be against his people. And he was. And his people still are to this day. Well, that's the end of Ishmael's story. That's as far as we're going to go this week. But, flip back to verses 1 and 2. 
I want you to see something here with amazing prophetic implications, but I also want you to understand as we read these things that you've got to see it and know it for Scripture's sake. Don't take my word for it. See what Scripture says and see if if the Spirit testifies to your spirit about these things. Verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Now we saw on Sunday that Keturah's name means incense or literally fragrance through the fire. That she's a picture or a type of Israel restored, having gone through the fire, having suffered through, lived through the fires of tribulation, literally the tribulation, at the end of time, that seven year period the Bible talks about, Keturah is a picture of that. And then Abraham takes her as a wife as God will take again Israel restored as a wife after those times. And understand when I say he takes Israel as a wife, it is again a picture. It's not literally going to marry Israel any more than we are literally going to marry Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture of connection with Jesus between us and the Lord and, and between Israel and God. But listen, in the names of the sons of Keturah, there is an awesome hint at something that's both wonderful and terrible. But to understand this, and I almost did this for Sunday morning, but I thought, no, there's no way. It would take too much explanation. I think you guys can handle this. A lot of you have enough background to get this. Listen closely. You've got to understand the literal rendering of things to come as told in Scripture. Now, I've said this before, when you study Revelation, when I study Revelation, I take it the same way I take the rest of the Bible, literally. Page by page, line by line, this is what the Lord says will happen. When you do that, it's very easy to understand that book. Very easy. When you don't do that, when you allegorize and metaphorize and jump around, it becomes very confusing. Listen to this. Remember our panoramic picture we've been dealing with for the last several weeks. Genesis 22, the son is offered, Isaac. Picture of Jesus and the resurrection. Form a timeline here in your minds. Because you need this to get what we're going to talk about. Jesus' death and resurrection happens. In Genesis 23, we see Sarah put away. What happens after the death and resurrection? Israel and the old law put away. The temple curtain torn in two. The old way of things is done away with, put away for a time, while the church age begins. Genesis 24, the servant is sent for the bride, the Holy Spirit. A picture of the Holy Spirit sent for the church and in this last 2,000 years fetching the church, preparing the church, getting her ready to come home, leading her home to the Son. And then in Genesis 25, again, the father seeks a wife in verse 1. Abraham gets Keturah. And after all of these things, after the church age, this past 2,000 years, the time is coming when God will restore Israel again. Now understanding that, The time of restoration for Israel is what the Bible calls the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium. That's when the restoration of Israel will truly happen. That's when all these prophecies about God being the king of all the earth, Jesus reigning from the throne in Jerusalem, will happen in that time called the millennium. You with me? Now watch the names of Keturah's boys because they paint a further picture. Zimram. Zimran means sing praises or celebrate in song. Of course. That's what's going to happen. 
The sweet fragrance of the restored Israel now gives birth to song in the beginning of the millennium. A time of joy and song and celebration. Isaiah chapter 12 verse 1. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you are angry with me, this is Israel speaking, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song. For He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 55.12, Isaiah says, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's going to be like one big massive musical. The whole world's going to join in. The, the created world. Mountains shouting for joy, trees raising their hands and clapping, people praising God in song, Zimran. The firstborn son of Keturah, the sweet fragrance, the fragrance through the fire. She comes through the fire. She's restored. And suddenly that breaks into song, which is exactly how the millennium will begin. It's how it will go for a good long time. This sweet fragrance, this new birth of song. It's a time of peace and prosperity. By the way, i got to share this with you. I just read this the other day. Earth's current value. An economist actually valued earth. Went through and said, okay, all the gold, silver, grain, oil, timber, minerals, fruits, if you add it all up, the current value today of the earth, I don't know how he came up with this figure, would be one decillion dollars. What? <laughs> That's like when I was in chemistry class in high school and they came up with a word for the number that was so big they couldn't say the number, so they said a mole. Freaked me out. Why do you need a number so big? I don't get it. All I need is like five, five twinkies. That's all I need. You know, six ding-dongs. That's all the numbers I need. Anyway, sorry. Earth's current estimated value, one decillion dollars. Now, to get there, you just go million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, octillion, novillion, decillion. That's how big it is. It's a big, big amount of money. It's a lot of cash. That is serious riches. It's said that if you divide Earth's current population into one decillion, you come up with about a billion dollars per person. Well, why is there poverty in the world? Because of sin? Because we're human? Because we don't know how to divide up the riches of God rightly? But if we could, if we did, share everything equally, it'd be a billion dollars. We'd all be billionaires. Truly, Psalm 104.24 says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your riches. So the millennium will be a joyful time, a prosperous time, a peaceful time, a time of song. Flip in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And we are almost done. Chapter 20 and verse 1. Now listen to this. 
Because this wonderful millennial reign, this kingdom reign that is prophesied about over and over in the, New, in the Old Testament. You'll see a couple of those just a second here. This fantastic, terrific, wonderful, blessed thousand years of peace and prosperity has a dark side. Listen. Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Oh, wait a minute. Let me just tell you. Chapter 19. Jesus comes back. The glorious appearing. The last book in the Left Behind series. Okay? It actually happens. Not maybe exactly the way they're writing it, but he comes back. And after this, as soon as he comes back, it tells us verse 1 of chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's really cool that it's not Jesus that does it, just an angel. Satan's not as powerful as we may think. Jesus, you know, basically allows an angel to take care of that for him, you know. Michael, once you get Satan for me, I don't have time really to deal with him right now. Got other things on my mind. So he's bound for a thousand years. The problem is that he's bound for a thousand years. Because if he's in prison, that means he's still somewhere where he might get out. Read on. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until... And that word until really bothers me. Until the thousand years were completed, after these things, he must be released for a short time. Wait a minute. <laughs> we got this wonderful, fantastic kingdom, Jesus reigning on earth, and Satan's going to be released again? Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And here's the good part. Judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the first resurrection the first resurrection, there are two resurrections. The first one, so much here, the first one happened with Jesus. First fruits. Jesus was resurrected. He began the first resurrection. After that, anyone who dies in Christ is part of that first resurrection, including and all the way up to the raptured church. Resurrected. Taken up, glorified. That's the first resurrection. All the way up to then, at the end of this seven-year tribulation period where people who came to know Christ, believe in Him after the rapture, give their lives for Him. They're beheaded. They're martyred for it. But they get caught up. They get pulled into this first resurrection. These are the people who are glorified, saved for all eternity. Well, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and listen will reign with him for a thousand years what happens when a Christian dies first of all they get resurrected at the time of the rapture to be with Jesus with those who are raptured all together with Jesus during the tribulation protected tucked away safe but then they come back with Jesus for the thousand year reign not in old frail human bodies but in glorified bodies what do we do we're priests the Bible says they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. You see, the world will have its first absolutely perfect dictator, Jesus. And we, as His children, will reign with Him on earth, maintaining 
that righteousness, pointing people constantly to Jesus. It will be a time of perfection that the world has never known up until now. But there's a storm gathering on the horizon. The Bible teaches at the end of this time of joyful song, peace, prosperity, Jesus' perfect kingdom reign, Israel's restoration, something happens. Follow this. Keturah, fragrance, gives birth to Zimran, song. But then she has five other boys who reveal in their names a very disquieting picture. Listen to this. Jokshan means ensnare. Ensnare. Medan means strife. Midian means contention. Listen. Ishbak means he will leave or those who leave. And finally, this is scary, Shua means from the pit. Put these names together, folks, and tell me if you see what I see. After the thousand-year reign of Christ, the Bible tells us one last battle will happen, one last final uprising. Satan is let loose at the end of his time, verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, which is a reference uh, to, to Russia. I'll explain that sometime when we get back to Revelation. But to gather them together for the war and the number of them, listen, the number number of them, all these people that Satan comes back out and deceives, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them at this point is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan... Listen to this. Revelation 20. Satan, bound in the pit, the abyss, comes from the pit, like Shua's name implies. He ensnares people. He causes strife and contention, and countless millions will leave. Ishbak's name. He will leave. Countless millions will leave the side of the Lord. This raises some very hard questions. Two that I'm going to do very fast, and I promise you, this will just be five more minutes, and we're done. Number one, who are these people? Who are all these people that are going to be deceived? And number two, why would God allow this? Part of the reason that this is hard is that chapter 20 of Revelation comes after chapter 6 through 19 which come after chapters 4 and 5, which come after chapters 2 and 3. It's at the end of the book of Revelation. And by the time you get here, when you study through Revelation, you're ready for it. Okay? If you're not ready for it tonight, just hang on with me. I'll, I'll make some tapes available. You can go through Revelation yourself. But who are these people? Good news. If you're the bride of Christ, you will already have been caught up. You will already have received your glorified body. You will already be reigning with Jesus in the time of the millennium. Revelation 5.10 tells us you have made them, literally us in the language, you have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they, literally we, will reign upon the earth. You made us to be a kingdom of priests and we're going to reign upon the earth. So at that time, we're saved. Isn't that great? Once you're saved, folks, you're saved. You're good for eternity. 
And when you come back with Jesus, and no matter what happens in that whole scenario, you're with Him. You're okay. You're covered. But the Bible tells us there will be people who will repopulate the earth in this time called the millennium. Repopulate. Literally. Who are these people? Three things to jot down. They are the remnant of Israel. That is those Jews who do turn to Christ and are saved. The sweet fragrance, the the keturah. Those who turn to Christ in the millennium will be saved, protected by God on earth and will be ushered into the kingdom. Secondly, those who are redeemed in the tribulation. Anyone who accepts Christ during the tribulation and stands by Israel at that time. Those who somehow don't die in the tribulation but come to Christ amazingly, miraculously, wonderfully. They will be ushered into the kingdom. What do you mean stands by Israel? Matthew 25 gives the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a judging of all the nations. And the sheep are those people who stand by Israel. The goats are those who don't. And those who stand by Israel, Jesus says, Welcome into my kingdom. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Come on into the kingdom. They are ushered in. And number three, the raised. The remnant of Israel, the redeemed of the tribulation, and the raised of the millennium. What do you mean? I'm talking about the children who are born and raised in the millennium. How many babies do you think you could have if you could give birth, ladies, for a thousand years? Not that you'd want to. (laughs) But how many? That's a lot of babies. It's a lot of kids. Rick, this sounds weird. Kids being born in in the millennium, in the thousand year reign? Hey, I didn't write the book. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. No longer will there be in it, referencing the millennium, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does, not out, who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. In other words, all the little old ladies and old men on the smucker's jars, okay, if they're dying, they're, it's like sudden infant death syndrome. They're, they're dying too soon. People will live a long time under the perfect reign of Jesus. They will be born in the millennium. Verse 21 of Isaiah 65, they'll build houses, they'll inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another person eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. That's cool. They'll outlast. We're talking about the people alive at the time. Those redeemed Jews. Those, those redeemed of the tribulation. Those children born and raised during the millennium. goes on, verse 23, to say, They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For their offspring of those, they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. People will give birth in the millennium. Life will continue in that final thousand years of the earth's history. Children are born. But listen, all these people, these children, born and raised in the millennium under the reign of Christ, they will never have known life any other way, except for the very first generation that is ushered in. After them, every child born from then on will only know life under the reign of Jesus. Sounds perfect, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound great? And we say, if only Jesus was reigning on earth today, everything would be perfect. Here's a hint for you. It wouldn't be. 
Even with Jesus reigning, even with Jesus reigning, it would not be perfect any more than it will be perfect in the millennium. What are you saying? I was raised a church kid. I was raised with Jesus reigning in my house. I had parents who had me in church constantly. The Bible was always open. We prayed at more than meal times. And I chose sin. And I went down that path and went quite a ways down that path before God got a hold of me and said, Hey, just because you went to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Just because people are raised in this time of Jesus' perfect reign and rule doesn't mean that the sin nature is gone. Oh, the influence of Satan, that's bound. Satan's not there to deceive, to tempt, to try and draw people away. He's out of the picture. All there is is Jesus. All people will know is Jesus, but they will still have free will. They will still be able to choose. These people who are born and raised in the millennium. And you come to the second question. Okay, so that's who the people are. Why does God do this? Why would he allow this? I don't get it. Why not just, as Penelope and I have been talking about for the last couple of days, and had great kind of ongoing conversation. Why? Why not just come back for us? Boom, that's it. We're gone. It's over. Okay, we're, we need Jesus. We know that. Why does God do this thousand-year millennial reign thing? It's not just so we can have an exciting study. Three reasons. Very fast. Trust me. Last three things. God's faithfulness. See, I'm closing the Bible, so I'm, I am right there. God's faithfulness is reason number one why there's a millennium at all. Remember why the names of Ishmael's kids are mentioned? Because we see that God promised that there would be 12 princes, and he shows us that there were, in fact, 12 princes. Well, God has promised countless prophecies and promises to Israel. You will be restored. The 300,000 square miles that I promised to Abraham, you will inhabit. I will be your God. You will be my people. Jerusalem will be a place of peace. It's going to happen. I promise it. Hadn't happened yet, Lord. But in that time of the millennium, God will fulfill every unfulfilled prophecy to Israel. Everyone. And by the end of a thousand years, we will all look back and we will say, Faithful is the Lord. To every single thing. Nine o'clock. To every single thing He promised, the Lord is faithful. That's reason number one. Reason number two, why He allows this time to go on. God's love. God's love. Because as Israel is ushered into this new kingdom, as people grow up born and raised, as people, the redeemed, come into this time, God's love allows them to maintain their sense of choice because love always allows choice. It must or it's not love. How do I know my wife loves me? Because she chose me. I know it's weird. I know it's bizarre. But she did. And I know that. Because she had other choices. I won't get into tonight. God's faithfulness, God's love, because love requires a choice. And finally, and most importantly, and hear me on this, God's grace. God's grace. Yeah. It will be made eternally clear beyond any doubt that eternal salvation, listen to this, eternal salvation came as an act of grace, God's grace, not man's goodness. 
Because if there wasn't that choice, if there wasn't that falling, if Satan wasn't left loose at the end of the millennial period, then people raised in the tribulation, or the millennium, sorry, people raised in that time of peace and prosperity, if they're ushered on into the eternal kingdom, could then say, I did good. That's why I'm here. No, yay. You're here because of grace. You're here because God loved you. You're here because you chose the same redeeming work that Jesus poured out on the cross back before all of this got started. The final rebellion, Revelation 20 talks about, the final rebellion that we see indicated in the names of the sons of Keturah, that final rebellion will reveal once and for all that grace alone saves us and not a single solitary work of man. We cannot save ourselves. Satan will come up from the pit. He will ensnare people. He'll cause strife and contention. And people will choose to leave the love of Jesus. And at the end of the millennium, this perfect time, man's heart will once again be revealed for what it is. Sinful. Well, through Abraham's life, he came to understand something which allowed him to die happy. He understood that he needed a Savior. And that's where we end tonight. We need a Savior. We need grace. We need Jesus. And throughout eternity, we will revel in the grace of God. There will not be a single living soul who will not be able to say with full heart and complete conviction, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal these things to us. And Lord, we understand it's only because um, we seek the counsel of your Spirit that we discover any of this and understand it. It's not because of our goodness. Certainly not because of the good things that we have done that we're able to sit here and, and take this in. But Lord, it's because of your grace. And we just praise you. Oh God, we praise you and thank you and just lift up your name because of this great and awesome grace, this amazing grace that you pour out on us. Father, it's a lot for us to swallow tonight, but it's wonderful words of promise and faithfulness and love and grace. May we take these things to heart as we live each day of this week, day to day, as Abraham did falling and resting on the grace of Jesus alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.